I always think that what I'm trying to do is make the editor's cuts look inevitable. Like I'm trying to bring musical connective tissue to a narrative. And so if I can do that, and I think with like, with this last picture, Dead Trigger, I did, there was a lot of that that I did. And it's a lot of subconscious stuff, but I can really tighten it up and I can really add certain drama or certain mystery, certain, you know, that sort of sci-fi otherworldly flavor to it. That's just not there visually. Genius, it takes a lot to get on my show. Genius, you're probably someone we'd like to know. You're really good at stuff, you probably like to dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius, get onto my show. Howdy folks, welcome to Living with a Genius. I'm your host, Omar Crook. Christmas has come early for some of us, well, for most of us in this country. Manafort, Gates, and Papadopoulos have been indicted by Bob Mueller in the Russia probe investigation. I don't know if it's a Russia probe or a Russia investigation or a Russia probe investigation. Sounds a little redundant. But anyway, Papadopoulos has already pled guilty uh, to lying uh, for lying to the FBI, which is great, I think. You know what? It seems like politicians don't really care anyway. It's all it's all about whether or not the optics of this type of event will prevent them from being reelected. That seems to be the only thing that politicians care about is reelection. That's it. It's not ethics, certainly not the Constitution. It's not uh, governing principles or norms of the presidency. Absolutely not. Uh, so why don't you call your representatives? Call your congressmen. Say, look, I'm not going to vote for you unless you do something about this. Let's impeach this guy. There are plenty of impeachable offenses. That's that is beyond uh, debate. That that is not a political political statement. That's a fact. That's a legal statement. Anyway, that's my soapbox. Merry Christmas, Happy Monday, everybody. It's finally cooled off a little bit. My mom's probably at home under ten blankets and a down jacket, but the rest of us uh, are probably feeling, you know, kind of nice here in Los Angeles in the low seventies. It's better than the low hundreds, I think. Um, what else? Oh my gosh. Well, yeah, of course. I've got a great guest today. Composer, pianist, um, producer, Stephen Edwards. Who's Stephen Edwards? Well, he has, uh, he's got 84 soundtrack credits. That means that he's written music, uh, and has licensed that music for movies and TV and documentaries. He's also the, just the straight up composer of 91 uh, films, TV shows, documentaries, 91 credits. That's a lot. It goes back to 1991. Let's see, when does uh, soundtrack credits go back to? 1990. So since 1990, he's been a Hollywood composer. He's got a beautiful house in the Palisades. He does just fine. Um, he did the sound, he was, uh, let's see, soundtrack of the prestige. Ooh, when was that? The Mechanic. War Incorporated, uh, and then lots and lots of other things. I mean, anyway, we had a great chat. He's also written a beautiful piece of music called Requiem for My Mother, which uh, has been performed at the Carnegie Hall in New York. Yeah. So he also uh, self-produced a documentary on the piece uh, that they did in Rome at the Vatican. I mean, this guy is, is really, really something. I've worked with him in the past. I'm singing for him now. 
singing a couple a couple songs for his music library. That's one of the th main things that he does is he he composes music, either instrumental music or vocal music. He has people come to his beautiful beautiful studio, and he records them, and then he licenses that music. That's a that's a something that they don't really teach you in music school. And I've said this before. How do you make a living as a composer, as a performer, as a conductor, whatever? There are many, many ways to make a very good living and have a very fulfilled life, both personally and musically, in ways that uh, we don't really know about when we're in music school. So this is a great lesson for those uh, listeners of mine who are in music school right now who might be thinking about, you know, how do I get into film scoring? How do I get into Hollywood music? How do I do that? Well, this guy is somebody you should know about. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you love my show, please go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast. I sure would appreciate it. Here is Stephen Edwards. Um, do you do your own engineering? Do you do all your own recording? Only when I have to. You do? Like when you, like we're recording today right. with you, I capture a good level, make sure it's not distorted, and then I hand it off. That's it. Yeah. What do you mean you hand it off to, to like, to, to a mixer? Uh, to a mixer. Mm -hmm. A pro. You don't do that yourself. God, no. Why not? Why because is it bad so? things would happen. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Like what? Well, I just. What's I just, the magic of mixing? How is it just the ears or is it technology or both? It's it, somebody is a is one removed from the actual composition process. Mm. And I want another opinion. I want another set of ears. Do you, is there one person that you trust over? Others? There's a couple of them there that are. I use that I love, love, love. And I've been working with them for years. They have ginormous ears they really know the gear they keep up with all the plugins they huh. keep up with all the gear so that i don't have to be the guy like oh you know focus right just came out with a new compressor this week and we should be using that on you know what i'm saying it's just yeah i want to worry about what's on the page yeah, and, yeah. You know, the music i don't want to be too much you know propeller head yeah, yeah you know yeah. Yeah. even though i kind of have to be anyway is that you know? i mean how do you what what's your primary business here let's let's start with that uh writing music okay for what for film and tv Tell me some of the projects that you. That uh, I just of. finished two movies. One's a zombie film. Oh, and with a very very high body count called Dead Trigger, <laughs> with Dolph Lundgren. <laughs> no way. Yes, sir. And a blast, blast, blast to write for. Basically, they gave me the film and they said, "Okay, uh, the score is due in four weeks." I I had the director, who is the greatest guy in the world, a guy called Scott Windhauser. Yeah. And he came in and watched cues. Hey, you know, make this a little more scary here. Uh, get out of the way of this line of dialogue here where, you know, we're looping something here. Yeah. Otherwise, it was complete artistic freedom. And the movie I did before was also with the same director called Cops and Robbers. It's like a bank heist movie. Yeah. So the last two films I've done have been just a joy to work on. That's it's amazing. almost like I was writing classical music. I get to write whatever the heck I want. And do they come here to the studio? They do. They do. And you do it all here. We do it all here. Wow. Yep. And what do you use to compose? I mean, we were talking earlier before we turn on the mics. Do you start with pencil and paper? Do I start with pencil and paper. On the piano. I do. I start with pencil and paper, especially for thematic material. Yeah. Like if I'm coming up with tunes or hooks or themes for characters, I'm sometimes I do it on my walk. We were talking about John Williams. Like one of the things I do that John does that I cop totally copied from John Williams is he goes and just walks and does his thing. I'm not sure exactly what he's doing, but I think there's some there's some some wheels really? are turning. So a lot of times I'll go for a walk. I go into Mescal Canyon and I'll take my iPhone and sometimes I'll hum tunes into the phone and just save them like, oh, this could be a good theme for, you know, just a little lineup. My, I sound like Kermit the Frog when I sing. Really? But it's fine. Like I can sing it. Yeah, I can sing it too. I can, I can sing it too. It's like, ooh, what about that? Just like Mozart. And then you come back and you just And I come back down. like, oh, that's the worst thing I've ever heard. <laughs> or, hey, this is gold. This could, this little 
snippet. Six note yeah. snippet. And this is exactly what happened on Dead Trigger. It was a little six note snippet. And it's the, it is the, it is actually the cellular material for the entire 45 minute score. Really? Yeah. So it was, it was like, wow, I'm, where did that come from? And then, you know, the rest is theme and variations. I'm just through composing. I'm writing, I'm writing to the visuals and now I've got my, my stuff, my yeah, stuff yeah, I yeah. can work with, my building blocks, now, my I know Legos. That you, I know that you compose outside of those genres. What do you, do you prefer something like the Requiem, which I'd like to talk to you about yeah. in a little bit, but you've got an orchestral choral piece that you wrote that uh, isn't attached to any uh, picture. Which Correct. Do you, do, which do you prefer? I mean, I know how you make your living, but do you prefer working on film or do you prefer? I think they, they're both different things. It's mm-hmm. kind of like, do you like golf or soccer better? Well, right. soccer is a team sport. Golf sort of an individual sport and they're, they complement each other. You know, you have to have some game to play both. You have to be able to work with people or work against people or, you know, there's a lot of the skills that I have come in, but with writing a classical piece like the Reckon, there's absolutely no limitations at right. all. Right, right. Does that make it more difficult in some ways? In some ways, definitely. Yeah, without, definitely. A, without a box to work Because in. nobody's saying, you know, in film they say, how long is it? You've got, you're informed by where it's shot. If it's World War One in, in, you know, in France and it's in a, you know, it's Rin Tin Tin and it's about the dog and you know the period, you're informed by so many things, mm-hmm. you know, and with the Requiem, all we had was a Latin text. And the Latin text has been done by everybody from Verdi to Durfle to, sure. to Mozart to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Requiems. Sure. So that was the only, the only known piece that I had to write the Requiem. The rest was totally me just skywriting. Now, was that the first uh, venture outside of film and television composition for you? Um, no, I've done a couple of other. I did a mass called the Ave Maria Mass. Mm-hmm. I did a uh, Misa Brevis, which is an unaccompanied mass. Mm-hmm. And I've done another piece called Revelation, which I'm probably going to release next year. Like a big, uh, it's, a, it's one of the uh, Bible verses from the book of Revelation. And it's just like this super fiery, brimstone-y, like crazy, like yeah. bad out of hell yeah, yeah. text. It's only like six lines long and I just go crazy. Everything gets pulled out. So the Prague Orchestra played the orchestra parts and then the Continuum Arts Foundation, which is the same group that did Requiem. Yeah, yeah. Is this, is, you know, so I have 170 singers on it. So it's got some cojones. Yeah. Are, you, you're, are you a religious person? I'm a uh, raised Catholic. Yes. So uh, you practice Catholicism? Uh, yeah. You I do? Mean, yeah, I'm not okay. like, you know, not, I, no, I I'm a cafeteria Catholic, I guess sure. is the better way sure. to but it. Sure, but I mean, that explains. And my mother was, my parents were very, very Catholic, raised in the church. I, you know, I was confirmed, first communion, the whole, the whole thing. Here in, were you here in I uh, raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. In, in Michigan? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And what so. Did, what did your, what did your parents do? My father was a uh, book manufacturer. So he, the family had a book printing business that started in 1893, still going. My brother still run it. And one of the things they printed was the Peter's edition music. So my Verdi Requiem is a Peter's edition Verdi Requiem that was printed by my dad. You're kidding. So one day he brought it home and goes, what's this Verdi? Verdi. <laughs> I've got a Verdi. I don't know a, ver- a Verdi week rule. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, ooh, I'm going to see that. And then, you know, you pull out the DSR and your life changes. Right? Sure. Oh, man. Yeah, and, it's nothing yeah, scary. It's like, yeah. And, uh, and my mother was a choral conductor. So uh-huh. she conducted the Women's Glee Club at the University of Michigan. She re- resurrected them in the 80s. Uh-huh. And then she sort of tailed that off in the 90s. And then at, uh, up until the end of her life, she, she kept conducting. She, she had a choir in Florida. And she was sort of this music impresario and my sort of musical muse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What, so obviously music was not foreign to you from the time you were born. When did you start? Really studying music? Uh, probably seven at mm-hmm. the piano. And I had mm-hmm. an uncle who was a fabulous piano player. 
Uh, he was trained at Juilliard. He was like this. He, I wanted to be just like this guy. I talk about it in the documentary a little bit. Yeah. Um, he he was a scratch golfer. He was an awesome poker player. He was a fantastic bowler. He was just a rock hunter, a guy about town. And he was also a real estate guy. That's how he made his money. He had five kids. And he was my mother's older brother. And so we were living in the same town. He was just this guy. He wanted to be just like him. He was just he was just cool. And he wrote a song that was recorded by Columbia Records, Mitch Miller, called Little Sandy Slayfoot. It's a Christmas song, it's like a novelty song. I mean, this guy. He was the guy. Right? Yeah. So I, it's like you kind of became him, though, didn't yeah, you? Yeah. I mean, I, I came. Mean, golf. I came like it became a, like an Uncle Joe and my dad and my mom, <laughs> like, like all mixed together. Like I just saw that. And I, it's like, you know, it's music business. It's like both things. I, I'm sort of the product of my parents, whether they intended it or not. Yeah. Because I am in the music colon business. Yeah. You know, it's like we're we're artists, but we're also entrepreneurs. We have to, you know. We have to figure out a way how to monetize this thing. Yeah. You know, that's something that I've talked about in past episodes, how schools in particular don't really prepare you to do that. Um, I, I studied to be a, a singer, an operatic tenor, and the pathway seemed very narrow in that you study all these arias and you study these scores and you get your musicianship and your musicality up to par and then you go and you star in these operas. and. What they don't tell you is that it's like a 0.02% chance right. that that's going to happen. And it's largely out of your hands. It's just exactly. what's in your throat. Exactly. That's just what you're born with. Yeah. And I've managed uh, to make a living yeah. in music, but it wasn't taught to me. I've had to really right. learn how to do it. Right. Uh, how did you come about making a living in music to begin with? Well, I with? think we have this in common, which yeah. is you could wear pretty much any hat you have to. You're, you know, you're, you're a trained to a level you you sing on a on a world-class level but then if i have you do this silly little italian thing where you're in a in a restaurant with too much pizza and beer on the floor you can play that role sure so you know you, you want you know how to wear the hats from the most highbrow thing to something where you're getting a paycheck it's fun. Mm -hmm. and it's fun and it's just a different th thing like i do stuff from musical plumbing mm -hmm. doing these like infomercials commercials you know all this kind of stuff that i do i mm -hmm. also own a music library so i've done 69 cds of original music over 12, 13 years. Wow. Yeah. It's like, it's kind How of, does that work? You just, you, you put out a CD and then people just buy the licensing? For, exactly. I see. Yeah. And then I have reps in the United States and Canada, and then I have all of Europe, most of Asia, most places that honor copyrights have companies that do this. And then they, I send them my content, they sell it for me, and then we split the proceeds. Wow. Yeah. So when you're not working on something in particular, you're always working on that. I'm always, I go right back to it. Like How, what's your day like? Do you get up early? You go for a early. run? I go for a walk. You go for I a walk? I do my John Williams. Yes. I get up, I take my dog, yeah. and I walk out my front door, and I go to Temesco Canyon. It's about four and a half miles, and it's just like it's like church. Yeah. I go in this beautiful park. I don't pay a nickel to get in. I see kind of the same people every day, and we chat, say hello. I walk back home, and I'm right back here in my office, and the phone starts ringing, and I start emailing, and it's, you know. Do you get lonely different. Doing, doing this? Never. You don't? Maybe I should. Maybe there's something wrong with me. No, but I don't <laughs> think so. I think, that, you know, I think that the the most, well, uh, how can I put this? So practicing for me was very difficult because I'm a very social person and I get, I, I feel like I need to be, a, yeah, I don't want to say I need to be around people, but maybe I do need to mm -hmm. be around people a little bit more than I, than I should or, and it prevents me, I think, from, it would prevent me from doing what you do and that I, I go, I would go for a walk by myself and then come back and work by myself. Mm -hmm. Um, but you seem well suited for it. I think also I know that I get my carrot, like I can go play golf and see the guys yeah. and, and 
have a, have a beer with them and and interact and joke and not think about this side of things. Sure. So I'm able to balance it off pretty well. Plus, I have two daughters, so yeah. um, I have one daughter who's in Boston. So I mean, I probably text with her four times a day. It's like I I tell my friends like it's like she's home, but there's no mess. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's just the same conversation. Like I talk to her. It's like, hi, how's it going? And you know, we 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 just have these great conversations about where her life is going. The kid is just like, she's 19, but she's way past 19 in yeah. a lot of ways because she really sees the world in such a. What is she studying? She's studying uh, at Emerson College in Boston mm-hmm. communications, uh-huh. and she has a real strong interest in nutrition and fitness. And so she's sort of interacting these two things together and kind of inventing this whole career it's going to be really interesting she's already got an instagram page called bella eat words and people are following her and she's getting emails from all over the country she takes all these cool pictures so she's got a tv show now so it's like she's 19 so wow yeah it's just like she's building it's kind of like what i did and it's kind of like what you did which is you create this brand around yourself that didn't exist before omar walked in the room because omar does omar right and there's so much more Omarness coming. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, there's other things you're going to do. You're going to do other shows. You're going to like. You've got this thing, thing that, going. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. it's it's just at the beginning. Yeah, you're just starting. Oh, I hope so. Yeah, that's nice. That's what John Williams said to me. He goes, "You're a baby." I'm like, "Thanks, Maestro." You know, huh. like, wow, that's kind of cool. Like, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. 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 You know, it's funny. I um I haven't told the story on the podcast before, but but when I was in just out of high school, I was 17, and <clears throat> the, one of the first jobs that I got. I think the first job I got right out of high school was at a bank called Fidelity Federal. I grew up in Newport Beach, and this bank was up on, on Irvine Avenue. And and I, I liked it. I was a bank teller, and I think in like 1988, I was making like $15 an hour, which was a lot of money really? back then, and it was great. Yeah. And um, and I had this customer. His name was Dr. Acord, and um, he was a, a, a physician, like a general physician, and uh, big white beard, kind of looked like Santa Claus a little bit. Um, wore Birkenstocks and jeans and just kind of, sh- you know, schlubby and really sweet. And he'd always wait for me until I was free to do his banking. And, you know, I was counting his checks one day and making the deposit. And I said, Dr. Acord, how, you know, just making conversation, how long have you been a doctor? Expecting him to say, you know, 50 years or whatever. And, and he said, uh, well, let's see, I'm 65 now. And when I was 50, I told my wife I wanted to become a doctor. So let's see, it's been about six years. Wow. Holy cow. And then he stopped what he was saying and he looked me in the eye and I stopped what I was saying. He looked me dead in the face and he said, Omar, it's never too late to do what you want to do. Uh, wow. And I How thought, okay. You should be paying him for I that. I know, right? I, I've never forgotten it. Yeah. And oh, it, yeah. I mean, that was a long, you know, 25 years ago. Yeah. So it's a long time ago. Isn't it amazing? Like there's a statement. It's like, it's like the pebble boulder conversation. Somebody can say something to you at the right time and it resonates forever. The rest of your life. It's like, you, they have no idea what they just said and what the way, like, especially with music, like yeah. how you're encouraged by people. Like somebody said something to you and I know something, people said something to me where it was like, I got a green light from someone like, is that, is, is, am I, have I literally lost my mind? Because, you know, my job was working at Edwards Brothers, being a, being a, uh, a book manufacturing guy. Okay. My family owns the company. I mean, I think I could get a job if I applied. You yeah, know? exactly. So like, why didn't she take over the company? What happened? Um, I just felt like it wasn't for me. It just, I just knew I, 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 I was, I wasn't very smart in a lot of ways, but I was wise enough to know that I had, it wasn't something I wanted to do. It was something I absolutely had to do. Huh. I just wouldn't have been, I don't know. I just kind of knew like, okay, I'm going to put all my crap in my car and drive to LA and I know one person. 
Tell me about that day. How'd that go with your dad? How'd that go with your parents? Let, t- talk me leading up into that moment. They knew. They, uh, they knew. Well, I got a job working for Disney in Florida as a staff piano player okay. out of college. I won this audition. It was called the All-American College Orchestra. And so I moved to Orlando for three months and did shows with you know Johnny Green, Mike Post, Carmine Coppola, all these kind of people. Well, Mike was the one I really like. Okay, I want to. I, I want to be like this. Well, yeah, guy. he's no. He was no joke. Yeah, yeah. sure. And so um, I came back to Ann Arbor and I started working on my master's in piano performance, which was taking me nowhere, even though I loved playing Bach, Beethoven, Brahms, Chopin, Mozart, whatever. It's, I knew I wasn't going to be Horowitz. Like I was at least smart enough then to figure that out, <laughs> <laughs> even though, and I loved all kinds of music. I was also playing in a jazz club. So yeah. I was kind of, you know, a cat that could do a little bit of everything. Was your heart not into the classical training or what, what, what was um, it about I it? just knew there was, it was not going to take me anywhere. I just knew I wasn't professionally. Gonna be yeah. And I, d- I didn't think I wanted to be a piano professor with 45 students. So you already had the wherewithal to differentiate between artistic desire and and professional desire. Yeah. And I guess that's my parents, isn't it? My mom was a- I mean, that's a big you know. deal. Yeah. So there was some, even though I didn't know where I was going, there was some something leading me out west. You know, I always think it's those old Warner Brothers cartoons, like come to Hollywood. You know, it's like there's just sort of this gravitational yeah. pull. Yeah. So anyway, so what I think now, my father's not with us anymore, but what I think my father thought when I left was he's going to go to L.A. and have fun for a year and he's coming back home. Yeah, I'll keep I'll keep his chair. here. And I know for a fact that he asked my brother, he said, well, when is he coming back? Like he thought like it's a phase. It's a phase. He's 20, whatever, two or three. He's going to come back. And I never did. Right. So I think. There was some of that. And then my mom was like, oh, this is great. He's following his dreams. You know, I'm not sure how he's going to do it, but, you know, <laughs> <laughs> honey, like, uh, yeah. and so, and then I started to like, things started happening. Like my post hired me to be one of his keyboard players. Now suddenly I'm like, I'm on camera on LA Law and they turn on their TV and I'm like a guy playing a sideline gig. I'm like, okay, that's my son. He's on a national, you know, the top five show sure. on NBC. Sure. Thursday night at eight. There he is. Yeah. So like, okay, well, maybe this is something. And then, you know, I got my first movie and then it started to just sort of, you know. That's so undramatic. Yeah. Didn't you, did your dad throw anything at you or did you have any fights or nothing? There was nothing like that. <laughs> I have to you say. Did, you had a nice childhood. Yeah. With great it, parents. It pretty much, yeah. <laughs> a concert B flat childhood, literally. And so, you know, there was, there was always like, I think they just kind of felt like I was going to come back though. Yeah. I just think like, and then. I kind of made it comfortable for them. Like, hey, you guys can come out here and visit anytime you want. And they always did. And they did. And they did, you know, and they got to know my kids and it was, it was fine. So, okay. So you're, you're at Mike Post. You're working at my, with Mike Post. You're on TV. What was your big, I mean, I, I was going to say, what was your big break? But that's a pretty big break. The I biggest, mean, the, one of the biggest breaks was when they called me and they said, you're doing this date at Evergreen Studios on Tuesday at 10 a.m. And when that happened, I'm like, okay, I just got in that door. Because I knew, I was smart enough to know, like, okay, now I'm going to be around all those great cats, yeah. all those world-class players. Now I'm in Mike's radar. Yeah. And then, you know, I did the first one and I did fine. So I got called again. And then I you got called You had no doubts again. about, I mean, oh, were you freaking call. out? Yeah, I was freaking out. Like one of the sessions, I walk in, you know, usually it's fairly easy stuff. You have to be a good musician. You have to be able to double stuff. You have sure. to be able to follow a conductor. And you're reading something you've never seen before. Sure. And it's usually pretty simple music. And then one day, the session, I forget what show it was for. And I've never told the story in public before. So you're going to be the f- only person I'm going to tell. I love it. Um, they put this piece of music in front of me. And I think what the orchestrator did was what they what they call coal sax. So what that means is there's a sax line that was 
it lays in a sax really well. It's like this, it's like a Charlie Parker line. It uh -huh. was hard. It was mm -hmm. 130 beats a minute and it was moving all over the place. And it was, you know, it was, it was lots of, lots of accidentals. It was hard. I Tough don't know. Lick, yeah. It was something that I would want to spend some time with. Mm -hmm. So I turned the page and there's this part and I'm like, I am dead. My life, my career is after a year and a half, I am former keyboardist and former musician because <laughs> I have no chance of playing this. It's not playable. Yeah. But I can't raise my hand with a 50-piece orchestra sitting there and say to Mike, hey, uh, Mike, it's too hard. I mean, I can't do that. So what did I do? I took the part and I put it in the back. And the, and the, and the orchestrator was in there and he goes, uh, you know, yeah. is there a part for keyboards? I get, nope. There's no part. So You're the sax kidding. player played it by himself and it sounded terrific. It sounded great. But I just said, it's either going to be that or it's going to be Curtains. A, cur a funeral. <laughs> 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 so I just put, and then, you know, nobody's going to look for it. They're Nobody not, said anything. They're not going to take the time. They're not going to stop the session. They had the part covered by the sax player. The sax player read it down. It was one take. It was over. I think it was a piece of source music too. That's unbelievable. Yeah. yeah. But I knew I didn't have to like study and say, oh, you know, I looked at it from back here and I said, this game isn't, this is over. I, I mean, that's kind of like when a singer takes it, is singing into a mic for in, at a stadium or something and they forget the words and they just start shaking the mic around like it doesn't work. Yeah. It's like. And then magically it, it comes back on and they go. Exactly. Oh, that's unbelievable. You, I, it was survival. It was like I was, I was thrown into a pit with alligators in it and I gave them steak. Did you ever tell this story to Mike? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> But I just talked to him yesterday, but <laughs> I think we're going to play golf soon. So that's now a, that he's got the end of his career and there's no risk. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. I did it. I did it. I'm guilty. And then from then on, it was smooth sailing? It never what? happened again, ever. Never. Not even close. I mean, there were some that were difficult to play, yeah. but I never. That was it. Like That, that one been... was a 12 out of a 10 and the others were one to four to five. That was the 10. Y in the road. Like, oh, a Z in the road. Right there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Huge, huge. Yeah. And then from then you just kept working with Mike and Yeah, and then I just kept doing dates and then you know the 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 business changed. You know, they stopped hiring orchestras. The, sure. There was so much going on with the economics of it. The license fees that they were paying per show went down, so the budgets went down, so the shows became kind of all synth. So they stopped calling the musicians and at that time I had started making my inroads, got into the technology and started writing um scores for you know low budget movies which i've been doing ever since when did that happen when did the shift happen from orchestra in the 90s to, in the 90s but, you know now it's shifting back yeah it's funny you know right all of seth MacFarlane's shows are orchestra they're you know it's they're starting to do it a little more which is great why is that since just became unappealing after a while or, um well i think in seth's and if you speak about seth seth just says this show's having an orchestra i ain't doing it period that's it yeah yeah like you make you make budget for it i don't care and so he's always been full orchestra every show and it's it just works it's just part of his sound yeah i think and it's time it's a timeless noise you know yeah, it's people just, can it's, tell the difference whether oh, they yeah. know it or not it's it's something you can feel exactly it's not something necessarily you can identify but it's something you can feel for sure no yeah. question yeah 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 i i've done a lot of work with with composers that insist on it and you know it's funny sometimes like john powell will send me a mock-up by the way his mock-ups are maybe the best in the business Jesus, yeah. i mean I I I called him once. I said, John, are, is this like, are you just going to plug my voice in and send it to the studio? Oh no, no, that's just a mock-up. We'll, we'll send it over to. Yeah. Oh, apparently his mock-ups are so good. He sometimes he doesn't go to the session because he says just make it sound like this. They're incredible. Yeah. 
So, I mean, and that those take a lot of time. And, and yet he does the session. And yeah. he does, he has the string. He has the people come. And what I tell the Bean Connors, you know, the producers, I said, yeah. the orchestra sounds 100,000 times better than the synths. So if you just want to, if you want me to tell you the number, it's about 100,000. Mm -hmm. So they're like, ooh, it's 100,000 times better. Wow, we should use an orchestra. <laughs> you know, I mean, you have to sort of like yeah. tell them something that they can understand because they're not going to say, well, you know, the dynamics of the uh, 8DO sounds right. and the way the strings sound and the envelope. Like, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Like, right. shut up. I don't want to listen to this stuff. But when you say it that way, like, and you say the emotional and the deep space and the way it hits you and sure. the feeling of, you know, 50 players in a room, it's sure. just a different, it's a different noise. Now, we've lost some uh, big studio spaces in LA for recording orchestras. Is it? Uh, because of the resurgence, do you think those places are going to come back? It's a good question. Like Todd and all those. I don't know if you know, Todd itself will come back, yeah. but if there's a demand, it'll it'll happen. It'll yeah. happen for sure. And you know, sometimes it's smaller groups, so you can fit them in the smaller rooms, sure. like Village or whatever. Sure. Um, do you have some favorite rooms? I love Sony. I love yeah. Fox. I mean, sure. the amount of times I get to work there is you know so small because yeah. my budgets are so small. And I, there's a room in Prague that I love. Huh. Um, it's the um, how do you pronounce that room? It's the it's the big. It's the big concert stage there. It's gorgeous. It's super warm and just you, green. You go resonant. there yourself, or you I do, have. You have. I've and gone then you there. Do it remotely. As or well. I've done it remotely too. Yeah. Yeah. Is that difficult? I've got a friend who d does that. His name's Kave Cohen. He uh, owns Ninja Tracks, which is a big uh, yeah. trailer company, music company, and they do it remotely. And they're up all night, like from yeah. You start three the session in the morning. at yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, something like that. We've done that. Yeah. Is that difficult? Um, it's. I love. I'd rather be there because I just love. The reward that you get from live players, but mm -hmm. you know the necessity and the economics of it. Sometimes, if I can get more players in another session and not travel us all over there, to me that's worth it. Mm -hmm. And I just we use Source Connect, and it's you know it comes in through these pretty nice Genelec speakers, and it's, yeah, yeah, you know, five hundred millisecond delay. Yeah, I did that with John as well with uh, Happy Feet too. I had um, um, George Miller on that Connect thing. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. It was in Australia. It's remarkable. And you're just yeah. There's no delay. Yeah. It's remarkable. Um, let's talk about the uh, Requiem for My Mother. Yes. T I'd like to know how that started, why it started. Let me talk. Let's tell me about your relationship with your mom, first of so all. So my let's mom. Let's get on the Let's get on the couch. Let's get on the couch yeah. and a nice pillow and a, and a drink <laughs> with an umbrella in it, right? <laughs> so my mom was uh, uh, a choral conductor. She was a, you know, a, a pure trained musician, fine flute player, got her master's in Michigan, started teaching. And she was the, my high school Choir teacher. What was that like? Oh, it was great. I it was. was. A, I was the worst kid in the whole. I mean, I, I could get away with murder. It oh, was, she was really, she was lenient? Well, that, there was a line you did not cross. <laughs> she was Sicilian. So <laughs> she didn't tell you, Until you didn't clap the right rhythms out, exactly. then there was a problem. Yeah. And so, you know, she exposed us to all these different kinds of music. And then the sort of the highlight was we did Kiss Me Kate and I was the gangster. And she conducted the orchestra. I've got film of it. You're kidding. Yeah. It's in the, it's in the doc. Just a little short excerpt. Me doing brush up your Shakespeare and her waving her arms. It's oh, pretty classic. It. Yeah. So you um, guys got along. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. We were like, you know, she we up until up until she she died in two thousand six. Up until she died, we were emailing every day. Oh, have you heard this new girl? Um, you've got to check this singer out. I mean, so there was a lot of that backing and yeah. forth thing. So we were each other's sort of musical muse. And then she always loved me doing my thing. Sure. And she got to hear the premiere of my Ave Maria Mass in Carnegie Hall with, you know, 200 singers and 50 orchestras. So she kind of got to have her moment there, which was very cool. I want to come back to that. So yeah. remind me. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, anyway, so that, and then when she got sick, uh, she got, she had ovarian cancer and she was diagnosed in 
September of 05. Mm-hmm. And both my parents were dead by August of 06. So it was just like a- How did your, did your dad have cancer He had well? cancer as well. Oh my God. Yeah, and they were young. They were in the early 70s, you know, traveling the world people, super healthy, ate right, went to the doctor every six months. This was like, this was as out of left field as left, you know, and their parents lived in their 90s and smoked and, you know, ate sausages and that didn't take problem. care of themselves. They needed to smoke and eat sausages. Exactly. Wow. Right? So- uh, and so when she, so before she passed away, before she got sick, John Paul II had passed away, which mm-hmm. was everybody admired this guy. He was, you know, he was a Nobel Prize, you know, he mm-hmm. had such a, and I actually sang a mass for him with Paul Solomonovich. Sure. When he was out here in you the did? late 80s. I was in the, you were in the crowd? I was in the St. Saint, Saint Charles Borromeo Choir. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Paul was a big influence on me. Big influence. Where is that? That's, is that downtown? Riverside and Moore Park. Oh, sorry. Lancashire the Valley. and Moore Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You can see it from the one. Right, right, right. So, um, Anyway, so I'm getting back to to Rosie. So she, so anyway, so John Paul II passed away, and I talked to the same lady I did the Carnegie Hall performance. I said we should do a requiem for John Paul. This would be so cool. Mm-hmm. I've always wanted to write one. She's like, yeah, you should do it. So I started like a little bit of writing, and then Rosie got sick, and then we knew pretty much right away that it, the end was near. So I started writing when she was still alive. I wrote the requiem. I started writing it, and I got about two movements written and then she passed away and then all the rest of it just sort of spilled out oh my and then God. we premiered that in carnegie hall in 2000 when was it 2006 yeah it was the end of 06 with 300 voices and 50 orchestra and soloists and the whole thing we part of it it wasn't the whole requiem it was there was four movements that hadn't been written yet why is that uh length because mm-hmm. what the the um, the slot we had on the stage, there was a couple of the choirs singing. So, I um, see. And then I added, and then we did a, another premiere in 2008 in Vatican City, mm-hmm. and that's where the film came from. So when we went to Vatican City to premiere it, a, a camera crew followed us. We shot you know, David Hogland, who was my co-director, directed all this stuff. We shot it in Saint Ignatius, and you know we shot all the choir and we shot all the rehearsals we recorded the piece there while we had all 200 singers there because the singers were from all over the country so we actually rented out ennio morricone's studio in piazza euclid and had the whole choir in there and we recorded the orchestra tracks in prague before we came out did and you... then the prague orchestra came down and actually performed with us so it's oh a, lot of, a lot of things happened. did you produce this yourself i did i didn't pay for the choir to be there i didn't pay for the orchestra to be there yeah all i had to pay for was morricone's studio and then i paid for the film crew who paid for the rest of it? Um, the singers. We fundraised. It was a little wow. bit. Of, yeah, it was a it was a crazy. I mean, how do you handle that? Just the paperwork. Is that something it's that's huge. in your wheelhouse? Do you do that kind of thing? Um, the the paperwork for the I mean, choir. Yes. I mean, just the rest. No. The producing of it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you did that all yourself. Well, you have to like you have to get clearance from the Vatican to perform there. You yeah. have to sign releases, and you have yeah. to do a release for the Vatican. Then you have to do another one for the city of Rome, and there's all this stuff you have to do. Yeah, so I didn't have to deal with that. I just had to deal with the choir yeah. and, the, and the camera crew. I see. Did your mom hear any of it before she passed? She heard one demo of one movement before she passed away because I was going back a lot every other week to see her. Did you ever ask them to come move out here? Especially Never. when they got sick? No, nope. nothing. Never even crossed my mind because I have two brothers and a sister and they live in Ann Arbor. I see. So they had a really good network of you know, people taking care of yeah. them. And I was working on a movie. I was like in the middle of, I was so busy in that era. It was, sure. it was a crazy time. Are you close with your, your brother and sister? Yeah. Yeah. I have two brothers and a sister. Two so, brothers and a sister. Mm-hmm. I see. And they're all in Ann Arbor. So. And what do they do? Uh, they're One, in the one's book. running the book. Oh, they all are. My older brother runs it. My my older sister works there. And my younger brother's in a sort of a separate business, a publishing business. He's not really involved in it anymore. Wow. Yeah. There's no drama at all. Well, the the drama now is just the way the book business has changed. Yeah. How is that, hap- that affecting that's that? That's been yeah. very, very, very hard. And they're surviving, but it's, you know, the border, there's no more borders anymore. 
you know, Borders started in Ann Arbor. My, my high school gym teacher was Carmel Borders. So we know that family. You know, the Borders exploded and then Borders was sure. one of the big clients for Edward. So, I mean, there was a lot of that going back and forth. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. I was just watching, I don't know what news show it was. I, think, I don't know. One of the news shows. I don't really, I don't get network TV, but for some reason I was watching it and they had this, this guy on that just published a book about the civil rights movement and each picture had this, like a symbol. I, don't, I forget what they're called. Um, you know, the little square with all the dots on it and you can point your cell phone at it and it brings up a bunch of information. Oh, wow. But each picture had this thing. And I thought, wow, that's a, that's a way to kind of bring get people to buy books oh you mean like barcodes in yeah, the picture and then yeah, you snap yeah, it? yeah 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 so for each photograph it'll tell you on your on your cell phone the history of that photograph who took the picture the the context yeah all sorts of things and i think also the educational market like yeah. if you talk to my nieces who are in their 20s they like having a book i do too they like having a physical book they like to dog ear they like to mark it up they like to be able to know where it is i mean so that part is still with us i have a feeling that the novelty of technology as far as reading goes is gonna t is gonna wear off, and there's there's yeah. a big. I think there's a swing. I just read an article uh, on my iPad that uh, <laughs> millennials are taking newspapers again, and newspapers are seeing an uptick. Actual paper. Isn't that great? Yeah, yeah. And I like it. I'm I, not there I, yet, but I bet my my son will be. I take the newspaper. I you like do? a physical. I like handling it. I just you know. Yeah, I do too. I don't know. Just... I think there's a big generation that found, and I I'm part of that generation where. It's convenient to just have things on your cell phone. I have all the magazines and all the newspapers on all my devices. I do too. And I read it the LA Times on my computer if a yeah. new story comes in. But I read the sort of the super stories. You know, I, I that's kind of my master folder. And then yeah. the, the computer is my subfolder. But yeah, I mean, I just, I just, I don't know. There's something that maybe I'm just from another generation. Yeah, just yeah. like having a physical paper. Now, let's talk about the, uh, was it Avi? Uh, Avi Maria uh, Mass. Avi Maria Mass, yeah. yeah. Uh, that was the first thing you performed at Carnegie? That was the first thing I performed at Carnegie. How does yeah. that happen? How I do you get to, here's the, the famous question. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? All right. Practice, Which, by practice, the way, practice, I have to right? tell you, there's a little side story. Yes. I was going to that performance and I was walking around Central Park and I got lost. <gasps> and so I actually had to ask a New Yorker, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? I mean, I just didn't know where I was and I, I didn't know if this way, I just lost my bearings. Yeah. And the guy just looked at me like, you know, he rolled his eyes like, you know, he pointed and it's like, you know, come on, pal. He didn't say practice. He did not say practice. <laughs> Thank God. Because he should have said practice because, you know, my, my sense of direction was so bad. But anyway, so the organization, Continual Arts Foundation, uh, got invited. And when they got invited, they invited me. I see. So Candace Wiki, who is this conductor who I've done a, a lot of work with, mm -hmm. she, they said, you can present a concert. Um, and, and it's an organization called Mid-America. Mid-America produces all these concerts at Carnegie Hall. They get dates and then they get, invite choirs to come in. Mm -hmm. So they invited her and they said, well, what piece do you want to do? And she goes, well, I'd like to do the Edwards Aubrey Maria Mass. Now, the reason she said that was because my mom was in Florida and Candace's group from Miami, when she was living in Miami, came and, and performed at this convention. And my mom, being the choir director, of course, went right up to her afterwards and she said, oh, you know, Candace, nice to meet you. Your choir is great. She goes, yeah, by, by the way, my son writes music. And she's just like, oh, no, oh, I'm one of these guys. Mm -hmm. And so then she handed the CD, the Ave Maria Mass, and then Candace really liked the piece and we stayed in touch. And then she said, hey, would you, do you want to do it? I'm like, sure, let's do it. Did, so that your was- Your mom got to come and see it? My parents were both there. All my home, my whole family came. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was a kick. It's neat. When was that? That was 04. And did that- um... Did that do something for that type of writing for you? Were you suddenly getting calls? What does that? What does being at Carnegie Hall do for you? Uh, 
it's just uh there i don't know how to describe it it's i mean personally obviously it's, yeah it's just it's it, it just kind of gives you another something you can say you did yeah um and it also makes me want to do it again yeah you know and which i've done i've done a couple more when i've in between things sure um and it I, I just love that music. And something about when you get to hear it in a venue like that is so um, that feedback you get, that sort of aural, you know, that that treat, that, you know, sure, that amazingness that you get from that sound the, that, that, only acoustic, come, yeah. that only comes from that mm-hmm. um, really is it's it's sort of, sort of addicting. I can see like right. while well, somebody who does a Broadway show wants to do it every night because you get that interaction from the audience and it's just so powerful. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah, yeah. It's and, I mean, it's like singing... Uh, Palestrina and the right. Sistine Chapel or something. Yeah. Or oh, by the way. We, Gabrielli and, and Venice. Yeah. And then the last thing we did with Candace was we performed excerpts from the Requiem in the Sistine Chapel, which was awesome. Isn't it great? Yeah. I've had the very good fortune of singing yeah. in, the, in the Sistine Chapel. Yeah. As and well. so they had, I don't know, 100 singers and a yeah. harp and a, they wouldn't let the orchestra in there. Yeah. So we had a harp and fiddle. Yeah. And like 70 radio singers. It's extraordinary. And we brought a camera crew with us. And all everybody slept all their stuff from LA, and we get to the place, and they go, "What are those for?" And they said, "Oh, we have permission." They go, "No, you don't." So all we had a camera guy and then David Hoglin, my co-director, and they had to leave their gear. <gasps> Couldn't film at all. It was heartbreaking. Oh. Somebody messed up. Oh my! God. The permissions were messed up. I mean, you have to get three sets of permissions now. I know, of course, after the fact. Sure. So some people did sneaky cam, like um, I GoPros. Like yeah, yeah, stuck. yeah. But you know, the guards are like. You know, they'll take your camera away. Yeah, exactly. Really no, they did it for us too. We, we, in exchange for not taking pictures, they let us lay down on the ground hmm, and, that's look, and look up at the ceiling, which, that's was, which was nice. <laughs> I never thought of doing that. I probably should have. <laughs> yeah. I mean, they shut the whole, they probably shut the whole place down for yeah. you. I, it's not something. I it's mean, it's incredible. overwhelming. I mean, it's like you're saying, like, uh, how could I ever even imagine how much greatness went into that? Yeah, the whole place. I mean, the whole it's the whole just, Vatican is unbelievable. It's just like the way the the courtyard. It was described to me that uh, was it uh, who 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 designed the courtyard? Well, anyway, it's like two arms mm-hmm. embracing the crowd mm-hmm. in a way, you know, with all the saints lined up yep. around them. Yeah, and I remember the difference. I don't know. I I'm not a Catholic, but I I, I under, obviously understand it. I was baptized Catholic. I don't practice Catholicism, but I remember being in Notre Dame and, and I've, you know, like most people who travel a lot, you've been there a few times. And every time I notice that it's really dark inside uh-huh. yeah. and the rose window is just way, just, you can't reach it. It's just right. so high. And I can yeah. imagine at the time the plague's going on and it's filthy outside and you come inside and you're very small yeah. as an individual and you look up to this thing as if, you know, save me. Yeah, um, it is. And it then is in Rome, awesome. it's the opposite. It's right. like they open the doors and you're in heaven all right. of a sudden. It's all gold and light and, you know. Opulent. Opulent and beautiful. And giant. Giant. Just, just the scale. Like, remember that pencil they have up yeah. in there? When they say that's nine feet long. It's like, really? It looks, like <laughs> it looks like it's half an inch long. Yeah, know, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. Now, when you're, well, we were talking earlier about the constraints of film and television writing. Now we're talking about the, the Requiem and and the mass that you've written do you do you ever come across um like writer's block well it's funny you know there's a there's a whole series if if, if you watch the documentary film there's a yeah. whole story about the dsra so the dsra was um and i'll just kind of paraphrase what i said in the movie which is 
the Dia series, I mean, just take the Mozart and the Verdi. I mean, it's hard to get more iconic than those I two know, pieces. Right? What do you do? It's just rattling around in your brain. You're like, oh my God, like that is- I'm a failure. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's Everest and I'm climbing a molehill, right? It's yeah. just no chance. Like, right. what do you, are you kidding me? What do you do? Yeah. So I've got the same text. That's all I have is the text. Sure. And so what I ended up doing was coming up with this uh, through, I mean, through this sort of, I mean, there was a lot of paper thrown away and I, and what I would do is I would just try to write it and then it was just awful. I'd write these, like these, it was just crap. So I just tossed crap it. Crap how you mean derivative or? Just not or... usable. I just knew it was bad. Really? I just knew I had to, like I had to have this process. I sort of had to beat myself over the head sure. with a two by four. And it was just like, I knew it wasn't anything I would Was this particular keep. to this piece or is this something that you do a lot? Well, really particular to the Diaziri. The Diaziri uh -huh. is like, you're you're going up there and you're trying sure. to you know get the ring with the big voices. Like, are you out of your, have you literally lost your mind? Sure. The other ones is, I guess those are as iconic as they can get. So I would just punt and I would go write the, you know, the communion and then I, it was pretty easy for me to come up with a, you know, taking a line of text and coming up with a tune and then extrapolating it and writing it on a piano and then taking it over here on the synth stuff and yeah. then figuring all that out. Um, but, and then there was, you know, Candace was calling me in the middle of this, like she was rehearsing the choir. She's like, you, we don't dude, have the DSC right. We need, we need the DSC right. <laughs> like these are not professional singers. We have to rehearse. Like yeah. we got, we're going to Rome in three weeks or whatever. How, I forget how long it was. Yeah. Yeah. But finally I had that like aha moment where I came up with the hook of it how, how were you on a walk? How, I was on a walk. How, you were. I was. And it was a multi-metric sort of hook. And I think I just sung it into a tape recorder or something or wrote it down. And then I came home and was like, okay, Eureka. Thank you, Jesus, Buddha, Allah, really? whoever, like for handing me this thing, because I don't know what I would have done without it. I mean, it's just, and then it just wrote itself. As soon as I had that one little, that one little gem piece that I knew was pretty cool, then it just, I just ran with the whole thing. Really? Yeah. It's funny how the uh, it happens to me too when I'm writing or working on a project that's kind of a puzzle. You kind of let the the unconscious mind take over. Is that yeah. something that you experience a lot? I guess that's what writing? it is. Yeah, it isn't. It is. You know what it is for me when I when I notice that I don't know that. I guess it is unconscious. But what I always notice about it when I'm in that space is that my sense of time just just goes away. Yeah, like I have no idea what time it is, and almost don't know where I am. I mean, like when you sleep, you know, like when you sleep over, when you go to a hotel sure. and you wake up and you go, oh, yeah, this is my room. Yeah, exactly. Like, or, oh, I'm in Santa Barbara. Like you start to, you start to fill in the blanks because yes. your brain is able to do that pretty yeah. quickly. It takes a fraction of a second, but it feels like a long time. Well, in this case, that's what it was. You know, you're just, I go out, like in here, I'll work in here. There's no windows because it's kind of soundproof. Yeah. And I'll go outside and it's dark. I'm like, Good Lord, it's dark out. It was yeah. light when I came in here. So I know that usually when I do that, it's like, and I'm just stunned by the blackness of darkness of night. Like I've accomplished something. Yeah, you know, I feel that that is a huge element of creativity. And there are a couple of things I'd like to speak about. I mean, for, first of all, I think that technology robs my son, robs my kids of that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And there's an op there are two things that happen uh, or two things that for me spark creativity. One is boredom. Mm -hmm. I have to make myself bored. I have right. to put the phone down. I have to turn the TV off. And I'll, sometimes it's excruciating for the first 10 minutes. It's like I'm in withdrawals right. and I'll pace. And I'll walk around and I'll get myself in a place where nothing else is happening except my imagination. And through boredom comes imagination. Mm -hmm. And I would imagine, I don't, I'm not saying that you get in here and you're, you're bored, but there, I mean, I'm looking around, there are no distractions right. in here. 
like you said, that's windowless. Right. It's a beautiful space. I mean, absolutely gorgeous. Um, and maybe that's part of your, I don't know if you do it consciously with your walks. Yeah. But it, I, I, I would imagine that that is a big part of. Yeah, I think that's accurate. Accomplishing. It just that. lets me come in and, and, and just kind of buckle down. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I find that when I'm most frustrated, that's when I know that I can't give up. Like I have to just sit mm-hmm. and punch myself in the face until I get mm-hmm. over it. I remember it was Frank Zappa said that if you're writing a piece of music that you hate, finish it. <laughs> because the back end, the last 12 bars. Yeah. And I guess that's what happened with the Diaseria because I kept writing crap, crap, right. crap. And then your other mind takes over. Right. But that stuff has to happen before the gem happens that's right. too. And it's like you're panning for gold and you keep getting, you know, rockster, rockster. And then like, wow, there's a nugget. There's right. Just a nugget. Right. How cool is that? I find the harder the problem, the more the unconscious mind. I mean, the more you apply effort to something that doesn't work, it's almost like when you when you walk away from it and you're quiet, the other part of your brain starts unraveling it mm-hmm. and making something good. It's mm-hmm. like magic. Mm-hmm. I mean, that must be really exciting. To, it's never gets old. It's thrilling, I have right? to tell you, it. I don't think it until until I just stop doing this. It'll never get old. It's also true with creativity. Like with like if I'm writing a. Um, like an idea down or something like I'm, I'm kind of doing sure. these other things too. I'm starting to produce films and I'm starting to get into other, obviously directing this documentary, like the documentary, perfect example, perfect yeah. example. So I'm flying back from Rome with my girlfriend and I knew I had to recut this film. So the film was cut once and it was, and we presented it and nobody wanted it. So I asked David, my co-director, I said, David, can I recut it? He goes, yeah, go, go for it. I'm not going to do it again. David's a provost at USC, super busy guy, super yeah. accomplished. He said, no. like, yes, he said, like, absolutely. Blessings, go for it. <laughs> Knock yourself out if you can do something with it. So I started, I did, I did a page one rewrite. So we're flying back from Paris from the Sistine Chapel performance. And I got my computer out and I just started typing and I typed the whole thing as a sort of a through composed like how would I want this documentary look and I started like I was born in Ann Arbor Michigan blah 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 so I just ran the story mm-hmm. all the way through it wasn't even a script form but mm-hmm. it was I spent Train probably half the flight which is a long time when you're flying you know you're going you got an 11 hour flight mm-hmm. figuring this thing out and then once I got there it was like okay I've got something now now I had my narrative I had my recipe I had my little guidebook now how are we going to fill in those blanks and then i hired a new picture editor shot a bunch of stuff over shot a bunch of interviews in here actually went back to rome did you do the shooting no i, I mean, had people do it i see uh-huh shooting and editing i just you don't do that no mm-hmm. i had a we hired a crew for, do some to do the interviews here a guy directed it and then i hired the picture editor is the key hire in documentary film land that's where the films are made by the editor yeah because we had 100 hours of footage it's a 56 minute film i know so I like, I'm doing that with a podcast right now. I yeah. just gave the guy all of my tape, did the narration. I said, "Please make a story out of this." Yeah, that's there's that's, a, that's that. a big ask. It is not a small task. Yeah, especially when you have all these different things going on, and you got to go find the you got to go find the gold, and you have to tell a story. You know, the, I saw an interview with Michael Moore. It's like he said, you have to entertain people. You have to make yes. a movie. It has to have it has to be a beginning, funny. a middle, and an end. It's got to take them somewhere, or yep. else you're dead. You yep. got no chance. He was so. So I read that interview over and over with Eddie said, like, yeah, the 12 things you have to do in a documentary film. It just guided me through the whole thing. What do you do when you get a project that's not told so well? A movie or a TV show or something? I try to make it better. You do? There's a, a quote from uh, Bernard Herrmann. What did he say? He got this, like, really bad, like, 1950s, like, horror film. Yeah. And it was just, like, awful. And, and the guy said, well, you know, Maestro Herrmann, can you, know, 
can you score this movie? He goes, sir, I can dress the corpse, but I can't bring it back to life. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, they call it turd polishing. You can call it whatever you want. But um, I always think that what I'm trying to do is make the editor's cuts look inevitable. Like I'm trying to bring musical connective tissue to a narrative. And so if I can do that, and I think with like with this last picture, Dead Trigger, I did. There was a lot of that that I did, and I, it's a lot of subconscious stuff. But I can really tighten it up, and I can really add certain drama or certain mystery, certain you know that sort of sci-fi, otherworldly flavor to mm-hmm. it that's just not there visually. Mm-hmm. So absolutely yes. Uh, to wrap this up, I want to ask you a, a question that I, I've never asked anybody before, actually, on the show. If you could. In the hopes of giving advice to young composers and people in film school, and what is it that's what is what is it that's made you successful? Why are you so successful? What is I'm that? successful because I'm useful. I think that's kind of it. I've I've provided something that people want, and I've been useful to a lot of different people over a long time, and that's really what it is. Because you know you can love music and you can be a great composer, but that doesn't mean you're going to make you're living doing it. But I think it's because I've been able to team up. I've been, a, you know, I've been a good team player. I've been, I've always made my deadlines. I've always been cool to work with. I've always been true to my word. And when they asked me to do something and I've always delivered my best work, that's kind of what it is. You know, and it's like Richard Kraft, the agent said, you know, use the food analogies. Like just because you love to cook doesn't mean you need to open a restaurant. You could still love to cook and have your friends over and make dinner for them. But, you know, we're trying to monetize this thing. That's another thing altogether. You know, it's great advice, Stephen. Yeah. Right. Hope I follow it someday. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It was a delight. Well, there you have it, folks. The kind, talented and interesting Stephen Edwards. Thank you, Stephen, for being on my show. I sure love going over to your place and and uh, chatting with you and working there too. It's a great place to work. Uh, I'll probably see you tomorrow. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you like my show, please rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast on iTunes. Remember to always be kind to one another. And until like next to time. Dance. You like long walks and you wear clean pants. Genius. Get onto my show.